Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to explore one of my favourite Halloween time paranormal investigations by reopening the case files to a pub that was described by the press as the most haunted pub in Wales. Some claimed it was the most haunted pub in the world. And I was lucky enough to spend many a night exploring, looking around and talking to some of the locals and the landlord about their own experiences. And much of what follows on this episode is based on my own personal investigations as a journalist for the Welsh press. So this episode, in a way, is a bit like The X-Files, but in Wales. So the Welsh Files, if you will. And it concerns a pub in the village of Kenfig in the county of Bridgend, where everything from spectral music to poltergeist activity has been reported. And that pub is called the Prince of Wales. And so, to begin at the beginning, which in this case really is the beginning as far as I'm concerned. We're going back to my childhood. But don't worry, this isn't some kind of psychoanalytic therapy session or anything. Rather, back to the 1980s when I was growing up in the steel town of Port Talbot, which is just 10 minutes away from the Prince of Wales, 10 minutes by car from Kenfig, and it was back in the 1980s that the pub began making headlines for being haunted, but not in the traditional sense. This wasn't just a case of somebody had seen a, a white lady floating about or they'd heard some taps, although I did speak to people who have reported that phenomena, and that'll be coming up later. But what made the Prince of Wales so special is that whatever was haunting it was recorded. It was Captured. There was evidence of this haunting. And as a result, it made headlines, not just locally, not just in the Welsh press. It made the national press. It made the international press. There were newsreaders in America talking about it. And I know a huge percentage of my listeners are in North America. And if you are of a certain age, if you're as old as me or even older, maybe you can remember these reports from the 1980s, like a, a real life version of Stranger Things actually happening. But beyond America, they were talking about it in Japan. They were talking about the Prince of Wales all over the world. This picturesque little pub in Kenfig. And to set the scene for you, I'm going to quote myself. I usually quote some eminent folklorist or ghost hunters on this podcast, but for this episode, I'm going to quote some hack called Mark Rees. And this comes from my book, Shameless Plug Alert, Paranormal Wales, available from all good bookshops offline and on, end of shameless plug. And it goes like this. The Prince of Wales stands in an idyllic spot overlooking Kenfig's vast nature reserve, and the surrounding area is steeped in myths and legends. Directly opposite the pub is Kenfig Pool, which is said to be bottomless and home to a sunken city, while the sand dunes that surround it stretch as far as the eye can see, concealing a buried city, which it is said 
was swept away by a suspected tsunami in 1607. So this really is an atmospheric part of the world steeped in myths and legends and history. And this buried city isn't just a buried city by name. If you go exploring, you might find the remains of the castle peering from the sand. But to return to the pub and it was soon after this natural disaster, soon after this suspected tsunami of 1607, that a town hall was built inland. And this served as a focal point for the displaced community who were forced to move inland to escape the encroaching sands. Now, that town hall they built where all of the locals could congregate away from the sand is still standing today. Well, in a way, because it is a listed building. And that town hall, which has seen so much history come and go, which forms such an integral part of that community, which has been with them through the very good times and the occasionally bad times, forms a part of a pub called, you guessed it, the Prince of Wales. And it is inside that old town hall, which is now a part of the pub, that the strange phenomena was first reported in 1982, and more specifically, where it was first heard. Because back then, the evidence of this haunting was audible. And according to the reports, at least, these sounds were caused by an organ, a church organ, which could be heard playing by itself inside a locked room. Now, this locked room had been used for Sunday school services in the past, where there would indeed have been an organ played. Now, it should be stressed, the room was locked, it was secure, and it was empty when these sounds were heard. And as such, nobody knew who could possibly be playing this organ if indeed there was somebody or something playing an organ in this empty room. And if they entered the room, they would find it much like I'm assuming I found it all those decades later when I was there exploring with this wonderful view out through the windows overlooking that pool, that folklore filled pool I mentioned earlier. And it's decked out a bit like a medieval banqueting hall, I guess you'd say, with, with shields and crests. And I might be misremembering this. I'm sure there were antlers there as well but it feels very much like like a mead hall in a way like the kind of the kind of place you might visit for a drink in a game of dungeons and dragons and try not to spill the pint of the local barbarian or anything but very much that that old school that medieval feel to the room but it was in this room the sounds were being heard nobody could find the source and the experts were called in including some from the bbc who turned up with their bbc equipment top of the range equipment Although it's worth remembering this is in the 1980s when, of course, the BBC's top-of-the-range equipment then is probably more primitive than what we carry around in our pockets today. But back then, this was high-tech stuff. And yet, while they captured strange sounds, they could not fully explain them. Now, one explanation, one theory that has been put forward, and it's quite a popular theory nowadays, but back then it was relatively new, and this might be one of the first, if not the first, audible examples of it in practice, and that is the so-called stone tape theory, which 
if you aren't familiar with the stone tape theory, a very quick explanation is that the stone tape theory is named after a wonderfully creepy 1970s made-for-TV film. Yes, a made-for-TV film back in the good old days when Christmas time was a time for ghost stories and the BBC recorded annual specials by classic authors like M.R. James and Charles Dickens or maybe an original film written especially for the BBC like the stone tape. And while I'm oversimplifying massively here, but the idea behind the stone tape theory is that the salts and the minerals and whatever it is that make up old stones found in old buildings has the power to record events like a videotape, hence the name stone, the stones in the building, and tape because they record and play back events like a tape, like a videotape. And of course, we are going back to the 70s and the 80s technology here. And a really good example of this is the reports that you hear of legions of Roman soldiers just marching through one wall into another wall and paying no attention to anyone around them. And the idea is that these Roman soldiers are simply being replayed like a videotape replays. They are not thinking, they're not conscious of anything around them, they are simply a recording captured in time. And the suggestion was something similar was happening in the Prince of Wales, because certainly the sounds captured there might have been the kind of sounds people would have heard in times gone by. And as you heard in that description, the stones in that old town hall were certainly old enough to have witnessed a lot of historical events. And as will be revealed, not all of that history was always pleasant. And this ties into another aspect of the stone tape theory, because of course, how do these stones decide what to record? What's important and what isn't? Because if they recorded everything, it would just be an unbearable mess. It would just be this explosion of every experience that's ever happened with every person and every sound that's ever gone on in that room. It just, it just wouldn't work. So how does it select which aspects of history deserve recording? Well, it has been suggested that the more heightened the emotions are connected with the event, the more chance there is of it being recorded. So as an example, let's look at a haunting that concerns a murder. Because whatever the specifics surrounding this particular murder, that event is going to be one of incredibly high emotions. And that is the kind of thing that might get captured in the stones and then played back. And maybe something of equally strong emotional power happened in and around that room when it was a Sunday school, when such sounds might have been heard that resulted in this being recorded and played back. Well, maybe we'll find some clues later on in this episode. And very quickly, before we move on from the stone tape theory, but this idea is why in some hauntings, where people don't see an entire ghost, but they might see parts of a ghost walking around, people might look up and see a set of legs walking along the ceiling, or they might look down and see half a body walking along. Well, this is simply because these events are replayed, or according to the stone tape theory, I should stress, they are replayed in exactly the same position as they took 
place. And if buildings have been changed, if floors have been added, if others have been demolished, if some are beneath ground, if some are higher than they used to be, that makes no difference to this video spirit that is being replayed. That stone tape spirit just doesn't give a damn. Knock down the buildings, build them up as much as you want. It's going to keep doing what it's always done. And that pretty much wraps up the background to this case. That is the Prince of Wales. That is what was going on in the 1980s, back when I was far too young to have any idea what the stone tape theory meant, but I was busy watching Ghostbusters and whatever spooky stuff I was getting up to at that age. And one thing that has always fascinated me is that I've read a lot of books about Welsh ghost stories. All the books that I'm aware of, I think. I've also written quite a few books about Welsh ghost stories, and I've spoken about many of them on this podcast and the many clever trailblazers who did the kind of spooky stuff that I do, but in a much better way in the years before I came along. But to the best of my knowledge, I don't know of any mass-produced book about Welsh ghost stories that has ever mentioned the Prince of Wales pub, which I always found quite bizarre. In the 1980s, it was, to quote, the most haunted pub in Wales. By the 1990s, it effectively fell off the paranormal map. It had, for all intents and purposes, had its ghosts busted. While there was no satisfactory explanation put forward to what had happened, people just moved on. And so fast forward to more recent times. In the last decade, when I was working as a journalist in the Welsh press, and each year, every Halloween, I started visiting a supposedly haunted place in and around Wales to write an article for the newspapers and the magazines and the websites I wrote for, because really, that was the only time of year my editors could let me go off and write about weird spooky stuff. The rest of the year, write about normal stuff stuff. But in October, you can get away with writing about this creepy stuff. And it allowed me to visit and get quite a different perspective on many of Wales's apparently haunted places. So some of the well-known places like Craigenorse Castle or Oystermouth Castle. And it was in 2017. The Prince of Wales popped back into my mind and I thought, I wonder what happened there. I wonder what happened after the 1980s. Why did people stop talking about it? And I decided to give the landlord a quick ring to pop around, maybe have a quick chat, a quick drink, and to make a story out of it. As it turns out, it became much more than a quick chat and a quick story. Because when I asked him if the haunting was ever solved, it turns out the ghosts had not gone away. In fact, if anything, after the media attention had died away, the paranormal activity escalated and from talking to the landlord, it was more active than ever. And that is how this investigation became something of, of a, a labour of love, really. An obsession, I guess you could say. It was something that started as a quick story for work that quickly became something that was taking over my evenings and weekends. And before we look at some of the ghostly accounts I gathered during that time, there is one person I need to give a huge, huge thank you to. The main person behind this entire episode, and that is a wonderfully warm landlord, or ex-landlord now, called 
called Gareth Maund. Gareth Maund was the landlord at the time when I started my investigation. He was actually in the process of, of retiring and finding new people to take over. But in 2017, 2018, when I was popping back and forth to the pub, it was Gareth who was in charge. It was Gareth who made this possible. He spent a lot of time giving me his own recollections. He introduced me to the locals, some of the staff there. He gave me a tour of the pub inside and outside and full access to that old town hall. He even went on a trek with his dog, but on a trek in search of that castle buried in the sand. And I've done a lot of these kind of reports over the years, and there aren't many people who go above and beyond like Gareth did. And one of the interesting things to emerge on my first visit there was Gareth's own views on ghosts and psychic mediums. Now, ghosts, he doesn't actually refer to the to the ghostly occupants as it were of the pub as ghosts instead he refers to them as his friends and he says good night to them nor star each night before going to bed he says good night to his friends to the ghosts and he has this interesting theory about psychic mediums and the number of ghosts in the building because he told me that he believed a building had a capacity to hold a certain amount of spirits and as such, if any of those spirits were removed, if they left behind an empty space, as it were, this might allow another spirit to enter, which could be a more malicious spirit. And he was saying that as a result, he doesn't allow ghost hunting groups with a psychic medium or somebody who claims to be a psychic medium as part of the team investigate in his pub because he doesn't want anyone potentially disturbing or even moving on intentionally or otherwise but moving on any of the ghosts that are there because they could be replaced with potentially nastier ones demonic ones even and he said some years earlier he had allowed this initially but quickly came to regret it and put a stop to any such investigations going forward. And I think this is one of the reasons why the Prince of Wales was under the radar for so long, because so many supposedly haunted pubs know that commercially you can make a lot of money from advertising your pub as such. And I'm sure anyone with half an interest in these kind of things have seen the signs, you've seen the posters, we are the most haunted pub in the universe. And for £50, you can walk around in the dark looking for ghosts. For £200, you can spend the night looking for them. Fill your boots. Well, the Prince of Wales does none of this. And it does tie in nicely with Gareth's beliefs that he doesn't want people there messing around and chasing his ghosts about. People who are respectful, yes, by all means, come in and observe. But people who want to possibly upset the balance, no, they were not allowed. Now, as to those ghosts themselves, which were said to be all over the pub in all, pretty much every room has its own ghost or ghosts, including the exterior of the pub, which we will get to. If we go through the building, effectively room by room, and if we start downstairs, start with the front door because Gareth told me that outside after last orders after kicking everyone out well he, he probably didn't kick his customers out they're, they're all well behaved customers of the Prince of Wales but after waiting for everyone to leave at the end of the night he'd let his dogs go out into the car park for a run around before locking up and on one occasion which must have been around midnight he said long after 
everyone had gone and he assumed he was on his own, he heard someone shouting, good night. And he could see what appeared to be black silhouettes at the end of the car park, which he assumed was a straggler taking a long time to go home, just being a bit drunk and a bit polite and saying good night. But what was strange about it is they didn't call him Gareth. They used a different name. And to quote Gareth, he recalled that it was a perfectly cold, frosty night and the voice was shouting, good night, Jack. And this voice got louder. Good night, Jack. Good night, Jack. Good night, Jack. And after four or five times, I couldn't get the dogs in fast enough, he said. Now, this wasn't just mistaken identity. Jack wasn't some random name because he thinks he recognised the voice and that it might have belonged to a farmer who used to drink at the pub many years ago, back when the landlord was called Jack. So, it would appear that not only is the pub itself supposed to be haunted, there's even ghosts lingering about outdoors after their last orders have been called. Now, stepping inside the pub, but not too far, only up to the inside door. There's the outside door, then the inside door, and we get more activity. See, I wasn't exaggerating when I said there was ghosts all over this pub, or at least stories of ghosts all over this pub, if you choose to believe them. It's a ghost-filled pub. So you've got the front door where Gareth believes he saw an old regular waving to an old landlord at the end of one night. Behind that, you have the inside door. Now, this inside door is one of those big draft-excluding doors. The whole point of this door, the sole purpose of this door, is to stay shut to stop all the other doors from slamming. Nevertheless, this door, so some people say, would itself open and slam seemingly in response to conversations inside the pub, inside the main bar area where people might stand around drinking or, or increasingly nowadays eat food as well. But if people were talking in this area, if something seemed to upset whoever was listening, that door would slam. And in one specific example, one Christmas day, and I'm going to avoid using names here, but it was after the pub had shut for for the day or certainly until the evening. I don't know what hours they had there, but when the pub was shut and it was only friends and family inside eating Christmas lunch, they were laughing and joking in that room about a family matter that a certain dearly departed member of the family would certainly not have approved of if they'd still been among them, as it were. And as they talked, the door did indeed open and slam to voice its disapproval and to quote, they expected the door to come off its hinges as a result. So maybe there is some family connection to this ghost or maybe they just like slamming the door for whatever's going on. Now, actually making it inside the bar area beyond this slamming door. And this is where the most, and I would say the only, certainly the only example I found in my investigations, most, most of the activity in this pub is of the more harmless nature, shall we say. But this is where the one example of violent activity is said to have taken place. And by going through the bar area and heading towards the toilets, which historically were a very important part of the building, not the toilets themselves, of course, but where they now stand. And to quote myself again, these toilets were built in 1973 on the site of an old 
courthouse from where the families of those on trial would have been pleading for leniency as the verdict was delivered. So this spot where the toilets now stand is where the families would have been pleading with the judges and the juries to go easy on their loved ones because if they found them guilty of a crime, the harshest punishment they could hand them would see them taken outside and hung for their crimes back in the capital punishment days. And it is on this spot that locals have described seeing, to quote, a little old lady with one witness describing her as being dressed in 1940s style clothing, which I know does not tally up with the idea that the spirit has something to do with pleading for mercy centuries ago. So maybe there's some mix up, maybe there's more than one, but nevertheless dressed in 1940s style clothing. And one local heard a voice say, and I think there might be an element of, let's call it toilet humour going on here as well, but apparently in the gents, a voice has been heard saying, I see you, I see you. Which, let's be honest, is the last thing you want to hear anyone say when you're in a bathroom, be they spirit or otherwise. And back in the bar area itself, so back outside of the toilets, this is where members of staff have reported being touched and they've heard their name being called, so more audible phenomena as it were, which may or may not be connected with this 1940s woman, but they've been touched, they've heard their names being called Dogs and young children appear to interact with some kind of invisible entities here. And I should say that is something that occurs throughout the building, not just in the bar, but certainly in the bar. Children and dogs are picking up on something that adults can't see. And into the kitchen area at the back of this bar, this is where I mentioned this this violent activity taking place. Well, this is the one area where it has been claimed that, for, for want of a better description, poltergeist activity has been going on. And it could most definitely, again, if we accept it at face value, but it could most definitely have caused physical harm. Maybe it has caused physical harm that I'm unaware of. But in one particular incident, it was said that jugs, china jugs that were hanging on the wall, flew across the room towards the people cooking on the other side and smashed into bits as they hit the wall. Now, moving on to the upstairs of the pub, and before we head into the old town hall where all of the initial stone tape theory activity is said to have happened, Gareth told me how he and his wife had seen strange mists forming in the bedroom of varying colours and shapes and sizes. And on one occasion, he described a white mist the size of a person tapping the door. But much of the activity upstairs is very much centred around that old town hall room, which is directly above the bar area that I've just described. And this might have changed, I don't know, but certainly when I was there, it was not just open for the public to wander into and have a look around, but it was available for pre-booking for events and parties and large groups of people. And if you are thinking of visiting the pub specifically to see this room, that might well have changed again since I was last there, so I would recommend checking with the venue first before travelling. But it was in this old town hall room, directly above the bar, that people say they've had their ears pulled, their faces stroked, they've heard creaks like 
footsteps on the floorbeds. Very typical activity for a haunting there. And we are getting all the senses. People are hearing and seeing, touching things. And they're also smelling things. And in something of what I think is a rather convenient ghost, shall we say, there is a ghost which apparently smells like rotting fish. A ghost that smells like rotting fish, which just creeps up on you from out of nowhere and follows some around. But considering this is a public house where many people might be drinking many pints of real ale, maybe there's a less supernatural source to this particular smell. But never mind the smelly ghost, because there's one ghost in particular that most interests me and that I would like to focus on to wrap things up. And this is a reported sighting of a spectral boy who stands by a cupboard in the corner of the room, in the corner of the room where, in the 1980s, people started reporting strange sounds like that of a church organ being played on its own. And this spectral boy has been described by some as a spectral girl. But most people seem to agree it's certainly a child, be it a boy or a girl. It's a small spirit. It has been seen by many witnesses and not just in the room. Others claim to have seen it in the same spot but from outside looking up and through the window. This ghost can be seen from the road outside. And if we assume that it is a spectral boy, that is what most people seem to think it is. Of course, it could be both. There could be a spectral boy and a spectral girl. But if we assume that it is a spectral boy, there is a story that might explain why it appears in this location. Because there is a tragic story concerning a nine-year-old boy who was killed in an accident in the Victorian age. Now, this goes back to when the room was being used as a Sunday school in the 1800s. And as discussed earlier, it was sounds from this Sunday school which some believed were captured in the stones in the wall. If the stone tape theory is correct and it is playing sounds possibly sights from a time gone by back to us, then this could be the period when they were recorded. And to return to our tale, our tragic tale, back to the 1800s, according to the story at least, a wealthy resident called Mary Yorath would collect the children from the local area in her horse and cart and bring them to the service. She was a devout Christian, and to make sure the children were there for Sunday school, she went out and gathered them herself. And it was on one such occasion that tragedy struck. It was an ill-fated journey that Sunday morning, because the horse pulling the cart was spooked by something outside the building, and a nine-year-old boy died as a result. Now, that boy is believed to be the boy standing by the wardrobe, possibly peering outside to the site of that accident, but certainly peering out of the old Sunday school, which was their destination. But who or what spooked that horse? Who or what is this spectral boy? And who or what continues to play the church organ just as it might have been played during 
the services for that boy and for the woman taking him there? Well, these are all questions that I was unable to answer during my investigations. But maybe you, dear listener, have a better idea of what was going on. Maybe the only people who can really help us answer those questions are those people that Gareth referred to as his friends. But if there's one thing I can say for certain, it's that in all of my Halloween time investigations, and in this case, it ended up being a November, December, an investigation that kept going on and on, but it certainly began as a Halloween investigation. Of all my Halloween investigations, the Prince of Wales is easily one of my favourites, if not my number one favourite, certainly up there in the top three. And while I do like to get nice and spooky on this podcast, the Prince of Wales is a wonderfully warm and welcoming pub. I've been there many, many a time for food and a cheeky glass of wine, and I'll probably revisit again this Halloween just to catch up with the ghosts. And if you are of a nervous disposition at all, please, please, please forget you've listened to this. Just go there, raise a glass, and have a great time. And maybe we can all do that one day. Maybe the Prince of Wales would be a great place for the next Ghosts of Wales social gathering. All of which brings us to the end of another episode of the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. And as always, if you've enjoyed this episode and you haven't already, please consider hitting the subscribe button and you will never miss an episode ever. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee via my website, which is always very much appreciated. And with it being Halloween time, I am drinking pumpkin spice latte at the moment. Or if you'd like to support the podcast for free, which I know is always better, then please consider leaving a nice review and giving it a quick thumbs up or five stars or whatever the options are for being nice on whatever platform you are consuming this on. If you'd like more ghosts and folklore and more Halloween goodness, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on Instagram. And as well as this podcast, I've also published many books on similar weird and wonderful spooky subjects, including Ghosts of Wales, and of course, the one I've shamelessly mentioned several times on this episode, Paranormal Wales, which does include an entry on the Prince of Wales pub and a nice collection of full-colour photographs that I took during my investigation. All of which just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian Amrando. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast, beaming to you from Wales to the world. And if you do find yourself in Kenfig, this Halloween time, and you do pop into the Prince of Wales, don't be too alarmed if you can hear the faint sound of a church organ drifting over that mystical pool and the endless sand dunes that surround it. And don't be too alarmed if you can hear the faint sound of an overworked journalist sipping on a glass of red wine. Until next time, have a wonderful Halloween. Nos Kalangayev Happis and no star. Mm-hmm.